Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. What's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs radio show. On this week's episode, I sat down with facial plastic surgeon Mark Beatty of Beatty Facial Plastic Surgery, talking about the opening of his new office located in Midtown. And he shared some information about the variety of procedures that he's able to provide that will help someone improve the aesthetic look of their face. Some of them, of course, include surgical procedures that many of us have heard of, but some others are minimally surgical or not surgical at all and have great outcomes for folks improving the contours and texture of their skin and their face. And you may or may not know, I also host a business-focused talk show called the Midtown Business Radio Show here on the Midtown Studio. As such, I'm always looking for solutions that will help businesses, business owners, and executives be more productive and drop more money to the bottom line, whether it's for their business account or their personal one. And Mark shared an interesting piece of information about some studies that have shown for business people who improve the aesthetics of their face, particularly around issues like symmetry and texture and quality of the look of their skin, that these folks can actually enjoy significantly more personal income over the years they work after their procedures. So if you're one of those people listening today that is one of those business executives looking to be more productive, looking to earn a little bit more money over the next few years, it might make sense to sit down with Dr. Beatty if you do have a bit of a flaw to the look of your face or maybe the quality of your skin. Here's Mark talking about it. Check it out. This is now beyond just what we see anecdotally with our patients. I mean, we've felt like this has been the case for years, but there actually are some scientific studies out now that have looked at this very thing is what do differences that are measurable in facial appearance like symmetry or like skin quality, those types of things, which you, you can quantify and then associate them with productivity, revenue streams. And obviously, these are long-term studies. It takes about 10 years to do them. But the data is very clear that for every one standard deviation improvement that you can make in a measurable difference in facial appearance over lifetime, that generates about a $50,000 increase in, wow. uh, in income. So if we extrapolate that out into what that does for a revenue stream, especially over a larger group of employees or sales force or whatever, it can be a, a very powerful number quite quickly. And with the Zika virus making news here in the United States, I took the opportunity to sit down with infectious disease doctor Manny Rodriguez of Infectious Disease Specialists of Georgia with offices located in coming and in Roswell. He shared information about the history of this virus, what happens when you catch it, how they treat it, and what they do to try to prevent the spread of the Zika virus. So stick around for my interview with Dr. Mark Beatty here in the studio and sitting down with Dr. Manny Rodriguez of Infectious Disease Specialists of Georgia talking about Zika coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. I'm pleased to be joined in studio by what I would consider to become a friend of mine now, Dr. Mark Beatty with me in studio. He joined us a while back and uh, really enjoyed getting to know him. And over time, we've talked quite a bit and I'm pleased to have you back in studio with me today. Oh, thanks, C.W. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, glad we've been able to develop a relationship 
looking forward to talking to you about some some new things we have going on. And Dr. Beatty is a facial plastic surgeon here in the Atlanta area, just recently opened a new office. Uh, the practice is called Beatty Facial Plastic Surgery. So talk about your new location because it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. And uh, this is something that we have just recently opened. We've had it in the planning stages for a couple of years now. You know, our practice has served for a long time, really the entire metro Atlanta area. But but we've recognized that there's sometimes is some difficulty in convenience for patients to come and see us in the north suburbs. So we, uh, we've we now been able to uh, to open a brand new office in uh, Midtown Atlanta. We just opened it last week and are, uh, are seeing patients and gearing up for the big grand opening celebration kind of in mid-April. But, uh, but we're fully up and operational and really excited about being able to serve a whole new population of patients more conveniently. And so when you do that event in April, are you going to kind of do a big do there and have some? Yeah, we will. We're planning for uh, April 13th. It'll be an all-day uh, event, and we'll have different uh, segments at different portions of the day, uh, focusing on some of the procedures we do, some of the uh, newer devices that are available, and we'll have some giveaways and some discounts. So it'll, uh, it, it should be a fun day and really looking forward to being in this community. Well, in addition to hosting the Top Docs radio show and Health Connect South, which are clearly health focused. I also have the Midtown Business Radio Show, and and obviously the people that join me on that program are entrepreneurs and business executives, and that's who tends to come and consume that content as well. And I thought an interesting topic, last time we were chatting, you mentioned the fact that that for the person in the business community that has to have a measure of presence and, a, and, a, and an image that will mm-hmm. help them do what they do, mm-hmm. that those that end up dedicating a little bit more effort in that in terms of their aesthetic appearance from everything, the way they dress. I know there's consultants out there that will help you do that better, but someone such as yourself who focuses on the facial aesthetics with your expertise, you can actually help some of those professionals improve their overall financial productivity, as it, as it seems, based on what we were saying in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And this is now beyond just what we see anecdotally with our patients. I mean, we've felt like this has been the case for years, but there actually are some scientific studies out now that have looked at this very thing is what do differences that are measurable in facial appearance, like symmetry or like skin quality, those types of things, which you, you can quantify and then assume associate them with productivity revenue streams. And obviously, these are long-term studies. It takes about 10 years to do them. But the data is very clear that for every one standard deviation improvement that you can make in a measurable difference in facial appearance, over lifetime, that generates about a $50,000 increase in, uh, wow. in income. So if we extrapolate that out into what that does for a revenue stream, especially over a larger group of employees or sales force or whatever, it can be a, a very powerful number quite quickly. And I'm sure that, you know, when people think about plastic surgery for your face, elective plastic surgery, I, I think in some ways, you know, it may get a little bit of a negative connotation. You're being vain by going and, and doing mm-hmm. this. But as you talk about, there are there are instances professionally where the better you look, the better you present yourself. It's just a fact that it you, you're going to be more effective in 
being influential, whether it's leading mm-hmm. a company or or maybe influencing someone to become a customer. And then also, I, I think the thing that I hear from people who undergo various uh, plastic surgery, you know, elective aesthetic procedures comes down to the measure of self-image and their self-confidence, just that kind of an intangible, it's, it's harder to measure. The person knows they, they, they feel it, but it, those little things I know from being in business development for 15, 16 years that, that when you are very confident in your message, you're very confident in what you're talking about and you're not feeling any kind of anxiety around that you, your presentation, it, it may be subtle, but it, is improved in subtle ways that make you that much more effective. And it sounds like that comes into play here too. I think it absolutely does. This is something else that we've recognized for years is what the impact of making changes, whether they be um, big changes that make a, a large aesthetic difference or even subtle changes that really the uh, is just correcting something that the patient themselves recognize. The improvement in self-esteem, self-confidence, it's a spiraling, steamrolling effect uh, of, of a broader life improvement than you would expect just from the procedure itself. So that definitely is something that has a big influence in the overall effect of what we do. The other thing that my practice focuses on now and uh, has been focusing on for uh, some five years or so is how aesthetics and wellness and overall health and well-being all go hand in glove. Um, Once we can get patients uh, to recognize and to emphasize the influence that each of those factors, their diet, their exercise level, their attention to wellness, their attention to their personal aesthetics, how once we get them to recognize that that's all one big interrelated thing, we gain yet another level of power in achieving optimal health and wellness for that person. It's yes. amazing. I, I can see that. I, I, I know that I can imagine, I guess, from when I envision it from myself, thinking about it from a perspective of I invested time and treasure in getting this procedure done. Mm-hmm. I'm clearly, I can see the difference before and after. And now I want to build on that. I can see where it would motivate you not not just to keep it, but to improve further. So it's one of those things. It's almost like gamification, like the the wearable things that give you uh, encouragement to keep moving. I would think that once you've invested in this to improve, maybe a you know minor imperfection or whatever the case may be, that mm-hmm. you, you you then can become that much more motivated to. Uh, show your self-care in other ways. Yeah, completely agree. And that's one of the reasons that we do expend uh, uh, focus and energy in our practice in helping people to do that. Because like so many things, no matter how self-motivated you may be initially after the procedure, if you don't have some help and support along the way, if the attitude is just, oh, well, we're, we're done with you, go and, uh, you know, go and, and take care of yourself on your own, For most of us, it's difficult to maintain that. So we have really taken much more of an activist role than has been traditional in the aesthetic surgery world in trying to help make sure that our patients are encouraged 
and guided when we need to through that process of, uh, of maintaining healthful lifestyle and maintaining their results. Uh, and, you know, it's resulted in more gratification for us, frankly, because we get better results with our patients and those better results translate into happy patients. Which, yeah, that's right. That's and that's for, where more patients come from, for sure. <clears throat> you mentioned symmetry being one of the things when mm-hmm. the, with the study that you that you talked about or the various studies that were looking at this very issue, were there particular facets that they found the members of their test group, if you will, that they tended to be focused around certain types of imperfections or types of things that could be improved upon that would tend to have an impact or or was it not so focused on that? Yeah, in that particular study, uh, what they were looking at primarily is facial symmetry. And the reason is because it's measurable. Okay. Um, so many of the things that we deal with in aesthetic medicine are subjective. And, um, you know, personal, personal opinion, personal preference plays a big part in that. That's why it's so critical that the doctors really all of our practitioners and uh, anyone that provides service of any type within our practice have to be attuned to how to communicate with our patients about what it is that's really bothering them. Because ultimately, that's the issue, is what can I do to help this patient, this person, to improve their personal aesthetic in the sense of how they feel about it? Certainly, I'm there to provide guidance. That's my job, and I have the I have the experience and the eye for doing that. But ultimately, what we decide to do is going to be based on what you, as a patient, want. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a sense, it doesn't really matter what if that matches my personal aesthetic perfectly. The job is more to guide how do we get your personal aesthetic best brought out. Do you ever find yourself saying, I wouldn't recommend that? Yeah, of course. There are you look great. There, there, yeah. And, and that does happen. And you know what? Sometimes that can be one of the most important and gratifying things that I can do for a patient is to say, you know what? Everything's fine. Don't worry about this. And hey, if we can, if the consultation can be that easy, uh, then, <laughs> you know, yeah. I walk uh, out feeling uh, beautiful. He yeah, just told me yeah, I was. Yeah. So, you know, we can get down into some of the ways that you're able to go about it because not everything that you do in the office is a big major type of surgery, you know, that from the various surgical mm-hmm. lifts and mm-hmm. different surgical things you can do. There's some sure. different things that are either minimally surgical or not even surgical that that can have an effect on how I look. Sure. That's uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, over the time, the 15 years that I've been in practice, certainly one of the biggest differences that we have seen is the ongoing development of new technologies and more effective technologies to allow us to do things on a more minimally invasive basis. Now, that doesn't mean that that replaces the need for surgical procedures. I can't duplicate the effects of a facelift, for instance, non-surgically. But can uh, we make some subtle differences that get people partway there, that get them to the point where they want to be without surgery? Absolutely. And so if you find yourself in a situation where that kind of more limited downtime, limited intervention is a better fit for your needs and your lifestyle and your time commitment at that point in time, uh, we really have some very effective options that are out there now. 
And as a as an aesthetic facial plastic surgeon, what are the types of? Well, we can just talk about the surgery first, yeah. and then we can talk about the other things. What are the typical surgeries that you're doing for folks that are going to enhance their their facial beauty? Sure. So uh, the the primary surgical procedures are going to be the set of aging face surgeries, which would include things like brow lift, eyelid enhancement facelift, which in court, we kind of speak of facelift incorporating the neck as as well. Also included in that would be various skin resurfacing procedures to deal with surface imperfections, pigment irregularities, and wrinkles. So that's kind of this realm of facial rejuvenation or aging face surgery. Then there are the contour-changing architectural procedures like rhinoplasty or reshaping the nose, mm-hmm. otoplasty or reshaping the ears, most commonly reducing uh, prominent ears, then uh, facial reshaping with either implants or fat transfer fillers. Primarily, that would be cheeks, chin, sometimes in the brow and temple uh, areas, people get older and begin to lose volume. So you're doing some volume recontouring there. And then the final piece is uh, skin surface care, maintenance of uh, skin texture, skin quality, minimization of wrinkles and pigment irregularity. Now, one of the things I've heard you talk about before is called ProLift. What, mm-hmm. What's that all about? Okay, so ProLift is my technique and approach to surgical facelift. And uh, I published this about two years ago. It really is the compendium of my experience over the last 15 years as a, uh, as a facial rejuvenation surgeon. And the central concept is that facelifting, just like any other surgery, really has to be individualized to what that particular person needs. And what my goals are, are to obtain the maximum possible result with the minimum necessary intervention. So whenever we can create a situation to shorten incisions, to minimize dissection, to reduce the amount of bruising and swelling and recovery time that a patient has, that's going to be to everybody's advantage. At the same time, you have to do enough to get the desired degree of correction. So what I recognized early on was that the, tr- the way that many facial rejuvenation surgeons approach things, which is to learn very extensively one technique and apply it to everybody, that (laughs) while more difficult on my part, more advantageous for everybody is to become facile in a wide variety of techniques and then make the decisions about exactly what we're going to do as we go along during the surgery. Um, so that that's the essence of what ProLift is. The acronym stands for Progressive Limited Incision Facelift Technique. Okay. You know, again, the goal is to be able to achieve uniformly excellent results with the minimum amount of necessary intervention. Now, is it possible for me to get these facial rejuvenating procedures and retain some measure of you know, being able to have expressive, an expressive face. You oh. see people that go and they get a procedure done, they clearly look younger, but they're expressionless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're really the goal with all of these procedures, at least in my hands, uh, is to obtain natural looking results. We're not looking to make people appear operated upon. And yeah, yeah. Now you, what you bring up about the expressionlessness 
you know, typically that that should never be an issue from a surgical result unless there's some kind of a technical error that's made. Where I see that more commonly is overuse of botulinum toxin, which, you know, uh, Botox or botulinum toxin more generically is a fantastic tool for managing lines and wrinkles in the face. But yes, we've all seen, you know, if, if, if you use it to the extent where, you know, you have no upper facial muscle motion, then yes, yes it looks weird. And, and that's certainly not what we're, now, what we're going for. I've heard about the cool sculpting uh, that you're able to do. Talk about what we're doing when, we, when we're working with that. Sure. So cool sculpting is a uh, novel technique for fat reduction that is non-surgical, doesn't require any anesthesia, doesn't require any downtime. So the basic concept is this. Fat cells are more susceptible to cold than any of the other surrounding cells in the body. So skin, muscle, nerve. Everything because they're not so be. vascular blood flow going through there. There, well, actually, that actually it's a cell wall issue. There, oh. they and so the the bottom line is that you can you can kill the nucleus of a fat cell at a higher temperature than would cause damage to any of I the see. surrounding cells. So if you can create a device that can isolate subcutaneous fat and cool it to that critical temperature. Then the fat cell non-traumatically dies and your body reabsorbs it just like it was a normal cell death process that all of us undergo all the time. Our bodies are constantly turning over cells. Now, an interesting thing about fat cells is after the early teenage years, for most people about 15 or 16, you don't make any new adipocytes. And that's why all of our lipo reduction strategies, be it liposuction or cool sculpting or laser treatments or whatever we do can be effective over the long term as long as you maintain diet and exercise because you can still make the ones that stick around grow that's correct that's <laughs> correct so but but as long as you keep that under control the ones that are killed are not regenerated so this is in fact a long-term solution just like all of the rest of them interesting thing about cool sculpting is that because it is cell death by apoptosis or natural cell death, it is non-traumatic. And that's a differentiator between it and every other method that we have out there, which involves some degree of tissue trauma. You know, it, it is, it's less inflammatory. How important is that overall long-term result? Difficult to say to some extent, but I think uh, clearly there it eliminates the possibility or likelihood of having any kind of scarring or fibrosis, things like that. So, yeah, absolutely. So Mm -hmm. we consider it a big advantage. This is a technology that I've been using in my practice for three years. It's been available for about five years in the U.S., so it's well-tested. We know that it works extremely reliable, and uh, I think it's a great procedure. Aesthetic facial plastic surgeon Mark Beatty sitting with me in the studio. We're learning about some very cool innovative ways that he is able to help individuals rejuvenate the look of their facial aesthetic. And we talked about early on for the business executive and entrepreneur who are trying to influence people as well as have a particular image that they're trying to project. It can be very effective for individuals like that to invest in this kind of work if they have some minor or even more significant issues around the look of their face that in the end, it could actually end up coming back with a true ROI over the course of their careers where they're producing more financially over the long haul. 
and as Mark was describing, in addition to the typical surgeries that you've you know, most of us are familiar with from blepharoplasties, uh, you know, and getting our eyelids done or mm-hmm. the bags under our eyes and different things like that. He's got a number of different ways that as a surgeon, he can do things for you to change the way your face looks with either very minimal surgical approach or even none, as he was talking about here with the cool sculpting. And now, as far as the cool sculpting goes, mm-hmm. where on my body? So cool sculpting is applicable anywhere that there is pinchable fat. In other words, if you can if you can grasp up an area of subcutaneous fat in your hand, then we generally can treat it within some degree of limitation. The smallest applicator, you know, if you had such a small area that the smallest cooling applicator would not fit it, then you couldn't treat that. But just as examples, abdomen, flanks, by flanks meaning love handles, yeah. uh, then the upper back bulges, bra bulge is what that's often yeah. referred to, yes. inner thighs, outer thighs, the area above the knee. There's a little area many people will have uh, at the uh, armpit or tail of breast that can be treated. And then with the newest mini applicator uh, that we have for cool sculpting, you can treat uh, submental fat as well. So mm. the neck waddle can, so, uh, can be treated. What's the procedure like? I mean, it would seem like when we start talking about things like my <clears throat> torso or uh, my, you know, my belt line or, you know, thighs and things like that. I mean, how long does it take? What are, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Are you ironing with a, with a cold <laughs> iron? What's it? Yeah. How does it work? Yeah. Okay. So the way that the applicator works, it's a it's a vacuum device. So imagine kind of a, a largish suction cup. Then the device produces vacuum that draws the tissue up into the cup, and that's where the cooling plates are. So the controlled cooling happens in that tissue that's drawn up into the device. Um, Each treatment cycle uh, takes about an hour. There is a uh, new applicator that we have just obtained that is, uh, in some cases, the treatment time can be shortened to as, uh, as little as 30 minutes. We use two devices in uh, each of our locations so we can treat two areas at the time. You know, depending on how much, uh, how much people, how many areas people need treated uh, on any particular visit, it can take as short as an hour if we're only treating a couple of areas, up to uh, three or four area, uh, hours if we're treating very extensively in several areas of the body. Now, I may be wrong, but it would seem as though that I will actually see the results over at least some element of time, because we've got, uh, we're we're making those fat cells die. They've got to be reabsorbed. Mm-hmm. So it would seem that I'm not necessarily going to walk out of the office after my procedure, going, "Oh my gosh, it's life changing." Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And so the uh, the process of cell death and reabsorption occurs uh, over the course of about three months. The majority of it will happen in the first six to eight weeks. So usually, if we have somebody that we think perhaps may need a second set of treatment cycles on the same area, we'll usually evaluate at that two-month time point. But three months uh, is is typical for uh, complete uh, reabsorption. Who, who needs to think about that? It would seem like there's sometimes, some of it's, you're going to have to do some of it with the hard way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think the answer, the answer is this. This is, this is a sculpting and contouring device. It is extremely effective for doing things that any of our other liporeduction strategies do well, and that is to reshape and recontour problematic areas of fatty bulging that people can't get rid of. 
the best candidates are folks who are already doing all that they should be with diet and exercise and just have some stubborn areas that need to get treated. This really isn't to be considered. This is not a weight loss procedure. Um, nor is anything else we do for lipo reduction. You know, this is uh, that that part of it uh, requires requires diet. Now you're exercise. doing something cool with platelet rich plasma. Talk about yeah. that. So platelet rich plasma is one of the hottest things in our field and in a couple of other fields of medicine over the last three years. And basically, what this is is a product that we make from a patient's own blood. Essentially, we are selecting out for growth factors, stem cells, and platelets, and taking all the other components of the blood out. That material has extraordinary rejuvenative properties because of the growth factors in stem cells, Mm -hmm. and that is maximized when you activate platelets. If you, you essentially are tricking the platelets into thinking that there has been an injury when you activate them. So what that does is initiates a whole cascade of events that increases the activity of the stem cells and growth factors. And that's where we get the collagen formation, the neovascularization the, uh, that helps with improvement in skin texture, skin tone, wrinkle reduction, stabilization of, uh, of injectable applied? fillers. You're well, there are, several, yeah, there are several ways that it can be applied. So one way is to use it as an injection. And we'll commonly do that in conjunction with injectable fillers because one of the properties that uh, that the platelet-rich plasma has is the ability to stabilize fillers, particularly hyaluronic acid fillers like Juvederm and Restylin, which are commonly used for dealing with facial folds and wrinkles. In addition, just the platelet-rich plasma itself helps greatly with skin tone, texture, brightness, So it can be used simply by itself as an injection. The other way that we use it is topically, though you can't just apply it to the face. It doesn't really get absorbed in that situation. So what we will typically do is use a microneedling device, which is a... Uh, sort of like a, almost like a tattoo machine, kind in a of. Way, it's a, it, that, on that's a less scale, a less, less severe scale. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a good analogy. They're tiny little needles. It's a whole array of them. But essentially what it allows us to do is to introduce a material into the dermis of the yeah. skin, which is where it can actually be yeah. effective. In both of these cases, these are, are office procedures, no downtime. Um, it's about as safe as you can get because we're essentially taking your blood, we're processing it, and just reintroducing the selected parts that, uh, that we've pulled out. So it's really exciting what we've been able to do with this. We're starting to use it intraoperatively as well to help with uh, with wound healing for facelifting. As a particular example, it's pretty easy to make some platelet-rich plasma and add that under the flaps to help to ensure better wound healing. Where does the profound skin tightening procedure comes in? It sounds very profound. <laughs> okay. So, um, so profound is a, is a new device on the market, um, using radio frequency as an energy source for, uh, skin improvement. There have been several previous radio frequency devices out there, and I always found them to be pretty limited in what you could really achieve. These were, uh, applying radio frequency energy to the surface of the skin. 
Uh, when you do that, it essentially is a bulk heating device. It just heats everything up. And the idea being that you'd get some collagen contraction if you could heat to a sufficient level. Now, the problem if you're trying to devise an office procedure that has no downtime is you can't create a burn on the surface of the skin. So you're inherently limited in how much you can do with topical application of radiofrequency. What Profound does is it uses an array of microneedles on the treatment head. The radiofrequency is actually applied through the microneedles, and they are insulated at their proximal or away from the body end. What that allows you to do is to bring up the treatment temperature to the level, actually we can bring it up to the level where it regenerates new collagen, elastin, and hyaluronic acid, which Mm. happens to be 67 degrees centigrade, and do it at the dermal level of the skin. So there's no surface injury. It remains a a limited downtime procedure. It's not a no downtime procedure because we typically get a little bit of bruising, but much more effective way of delivering radio frequency to, uh, to achieve skin tightening. And that's really the big strength of the profound procedure is for non-surgical skin tightening. So it sounds like you're going to do was if I'm one of those people, I have an imperfection like I've got, I've got a twice broken nose um, mm-hmm. that in some photos it's like, wow, it's really canted to the side. But for the folks that have some measure of facial imperfection, or as you talked about, some measure of uh, asymmetry of face is not mm-hmm. quite the same on both sides. Mm-hmm. You're going to sit with them in a consultation and go over basically all these different options, because I, I would imagine with a given person, there may be one, two, or three of these different things that could combine together to give them an outcome, or is that is that correct? Or? Yeah, uh, that 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 is a good description of what a typical consult would be. What we generally do in my practice is plan on allotting about an hour for an initial consultation with uh, with somebody. We sit down with we sit down with their photographs. I'm able to review those, review the photographs with the patient. We can do uh, we can do video imaging uh, modification to look at what some different interventions may be able to achieve, and uh, then you know depending on the areas of concern and areas of interest, uh, we frequently will go through a set of potential options for that person. And again, it's this whole idea of really trying to individualize treatment and get to get to the point where we have a good matchup of desired result, available downtime, uh, just fitting the whole package into what that patient's needs are. Well, as it relates to this type of aesthetic procedure, it's clear that getting with somebody who, like you, Mark, uh, is going to sit down and try to evaluate and maybe in some cases say, no, I really don't think you need to fix this particular issue because it might pose risk that you don't necessarily need based on mm-hmm. what you're working with right now. You just mm-hmm. need to celebrate it. Yeah. So being able to sit down with somebody like that that's going to truly take a consultative approach to evaluate what you are trying to achieve and then make recommendations on that, some of which may be surgical, some of which may not be that you're going to be able to come away with truly the minimal approach necessary to achieve the the greatest aesthetic outcome that you want. Yeah, that's that's generally the goal is especially in our modern day everybody has a busy lifestyle. So, uh it's difficult to take 2 weeks or 3 weeks off. So if we can find a way 
to get you to a result that that is desirable in a shorter period of time, then everybody wins. And if you want information about Dr. Beatty's practice, you can go to Beatty MD. Beatty is spelled B-E-A-T-Y, BeattyMD.com. They've also got an Instagram page where you can see lots of photographs of their work, and that is Beatty uh, Beatty Facial Plastic Surgery on Instagram. Of course, they're on uh, the other social media sites as well, and you can link to them from the website. Yes, absolutely. Those are all hot linked from the website. You want me to give out your email or contact information? Yeah, yeah, contact information, absolutely. Uh, Phone for the office, 844-372-3289, 844-372-3289. And as he was saying at the beginning of the show, they have a couple of locations that you can take a look at now for your convenience to be able to get to one close to work or close to home, whichever is appropriate for you. Before we uh, let you go, anything else that uh, we need to cover real quick before I jump over and talk Zika with Dr. Rodriguez? Uh, no, I think uh, I think we've, I've enjoyed it. Had a chance to talk about a few things. There are always or are, are more new things on the horizon. So maybe uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get so, together. Yeah, uh, I always get enjoy together having you. So we'll have you back. That. That's All right, right. We'll fantastic. Have you, we'll have you coming back. And as I mentioned in the news, we've been hearing a lot about uh, the mosquito-borne illness that is apparently most problematic for women who are pregnant when they are exposed to it, causing them to uh, deliver babies with uh, high risk for microcephaly, which is very, very, very troubling. But I sat down with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Manny Rodriguez from infectious disease specialist of Georgia. Uh, his office is located in Cumming, Georgia. He also spent some time near North, North Fulton Hospital in their Roswell office as well. But uh, here's me sitting down with Dr. Rodriguez to learn a little bit more about Zika. Check it out. I'm sitting down with Dr. Manny Rodriguez of infectious disease specialist of Georgia. He has offices located in Cumming, Georgia, as well as Roswell, and does work at both places, helping hospitals at North Fulton, as well as Northside Forsyth. I'm real pleased to have a chance to sit down with Dr. Rodriguez, because we're going to be talking about something that's certainly in the news today, the Zika virus. As an infectious disease specialist, I'm sure you've seen a host of mosquito-borne illnesses, so I'm really pleased that you were able to break out of the office today for a few minutes and sit down and talk about it. So thanks for joining me. No, thank you for having me. So for folks who aren't familiar with you, Dr. Rodriguez, talk about back in the the day, what made you go down the path of getting Mm -hmm. into medicine to begin with? So often it's it's still a cliche. Um, I got to medicine because I wanted to help people. And to be frank, I I really enjoyed school quite a bit. And so the combination of what could possibly be the longest amount of school I could possibly have and help (laughs) people, uh, being physicians seemed to be the way to go. And when you got into your medical training, uh, obviously you started going through different rotations. What made you think, wow, I want to get into infectious disease as a specialty? Because clearly these patients are very sick. You're dealing with, in many cases, some very dangerous infectious agents. So what made you think, wow, I want to be an infectious disease specialist? It really had to do with uh, my attendings at the time. All the attendings I had as infectious disease um, rotations went on were oftentimes I found the smartest, the nicest. Um, They seemed to know what they were talking about. And and frankly, I wanted to emanate that. And so when it came down to picking a subspecialty, infectious disease was definitely the way I wanted to go. Well, and, and clearly when you're dealing with your patients, as I mentioned, that many of them are very sick or at least at grave risk. So when you get involved with their case, there's a nice opportunity to really have a significant impact on their outcomes for sure. Absolutely. I mean, infectious disease, we always see, you know, the kind of benefit of what we do when people get better. So that's great. Coming from a practice that focuses on people that have wounds, we end up working with uh, your practice often. And it's one of those things where I'm sure 
in many cases, the sooner involvement with you, the better, when, particularly with certain infections, I would imagine. Absolutely. The earlier, the better. What brought us together today, we wanted to talk about the Zika virus. It's been in the news um, heavily lately, particularly with the onset of the Olympics going to be held down mm-hmm. there in Brazil, which apparently is one of the places or the place that we found that the virus seems to be originating from and, and people that are coming back to the States where we're hearing about it have traveled there recently. So what are we talking about when we're when we're discussing Zika virus and, and, and what does it mean for us? Sure. So absolutely, um, on the news, there's been uh, a lot of press about it. To be frank, um, Zika virus has been known to be in existence since about 1947, but the first human outbreaks really didn't come across until about 1952 in Africa, uh, somewhere in the um, Republic of Uganda and Tanzania. Um, hasn't really been a problem in the, in, the, in the U.S. so much up until recently, simply because of the travel in the America, specifically Brazil, as you mentioned, there was a section in the Northwest corner where they started noticing an increased incidence of Zika virus and subsequently an association between that and the incidence of microcephaly in that area. And because of that, the news kind of took this on as a very important topic. And so I guess what has occurred more recently, one, obviously the media in general is going to be paying more attention to Brazil these days as they build, as, as I was mentioning, up for the oncoming Olympics. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I guess it perhaps got more international coverage. Um, but when we talk about the Zika virus and you get infected with it as an adult who, who may or may not be pregnant, how do I know I have it? I mean, what, it, what, is it, what does it do to me? Sure. In most cases, about one in five people will be actually asymptomatic. So only about 20% of folks who are infected will get symptoms. Symptoms generally are very mild and include things like rash, fever, sometimes headaches, but oftentimes a joint, joint pain as well. Um, the symptoms last generally for about two to 12 days. And again, very, very mild. There's been a sub, a sum that is less than about 1% of case fatality rates in, in this particular uh, virus and very few hospitalizations. Infectious disease specialist, Dr. Manny Rodriguez of Infectious Disease Specialists of Georgia is joining me. We're talking about the Zika virus, the fact that it is borne very heavily by mosquitoes. It's one of the big ways of, of transmission, but they're talking about the possibilities of it being transmitted also by sexual contact. Are there are, are, are those types of transmission starting to bear out that, in fact, you can get infected by somebody who's actively got the d- disease through other means? So great question. So, so far there's been two documented cases, mostly in semen from men who have been travelers to areas that are known to have Zika virus. And it's unclear right now what this means as far as in folks who want to become pregnant in the future. But it seems like at least right now that the Zika virus in semen may last a little bit longer, uh, maybe, and may, maybe actually be detected longer in the semen than actually in the blood, which lasts about usually about one week or so. And that was a question I was going to ask also in terms of when you become infected with the Zika virus, is it a situation where it's self-limiting, the infection, essentially you have it sort of like a cold, you get infection from an influenza virus and you fight it for a week or two weeks, however long. And then basically the virus is eliminated. It's not continuing to live in your body, much like say a herpes virus would. Is this the same sort of uh, infectious agent where you become sick with it? You have the virus on your body, in the body for a period of time, but your body then ultimately overcomes the infection and eliminates it. It's just during that phase of infection. Is that what we're talking about? So as far as we know, as of right now, that we believe that the Zika virus is eliminated by the body. We don't know for sure if it's going to be like the herpes virus where it lies dormant for a long period of time, but it's part of a class of flaviviruses. And most of those things, things like dengue virus, yellow fever, et cetera, are types of viruses that come and go, do not okay. have persistent symptoms with time. As far as 
you mentioned the fact that there are some mild you know, symptoms. Maybe you get a rash, maybe you feel some joint pain or, or feel some malaise, whatever the case may be. They're relatively vague and ambiguous. From a treatment perspective, is there any sort of treatment that they have available to manage you through that time? Or is it more like you have a cold, but there's not a whole lot we can do about it. We just monitor you and, and support you while you're dealing with it. So unfortunately, there are no uh, specific treatments right now for Zika virus. The treatment, as you mentioned, is really just a symptom management. You know, you have uh, fever, you know, give medication to combat the fever. You have joint pains, give, you know, pain medication to combat the joint pains. That's about all we have right now. Do you know how long the infection lasts? If I've been exposed and I'm exhibiting symptoms, I assume there's some sort of a blood test marker that that you would test for to, to assess whether or not a, it's Zika virus as the contributing agent. Um, so a couple of things. One is we believe that it, the symptoms will start to occur about two days after being exposed to the to the virus itself. And again, only about 20% of folks actually have the, the virus will become symptomatic from it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you, doesn't mean the mosquito can't bite that person who's an asymptomatic and, tr- and pass on to somebody else. You, you can still do that. But going to the question about how, how we de- how we determine, yes, this is the Zika virus. Is there a blood study oh, yes. of some kind or is it more Sorry. clinical? Yes, history? It's most, mostly it's clinical based on travel history. If you come to any of those areas that have been affected by the Zika virus within the last two weeks or so, you want to go ahead and be tested. And the testing it is actually done via your state or uh, local health department. You actually call them up. There is an RT-PCR test that is done for that. And there are other tests that are currently under investigation. And so I guess the real risk comes from during that period of time, you know, just like to use the cold as the analogy, while I'm carrying around my cold and symptoms, I'm probably able to transmit it to someone else. Similarly, if I've been in that area uh, around mosquitoes where I'm getting bitten by mosquitoes, um, and it turns out I have some symptoms, if I'm one of the one of the few that manifest symptoms, I guess it's my my risk as a vector, if you will, that could infect somebody else is just in that week or two week time that that I'm affected by the virus? Correct. We believe that's, about, that's, that's correct. About the week you have the viremia is about the week that you'll be able to transmit it to mosquitoes and then give to somebody else. So they don't get fever or anything like that that would really be a telltale that they've got something going on or, or do some of the folks start getting feverish? No, the folks will, about a couple of days, will start getting feverish mm-hmm. and again, have the joint pains, the macular rash, as well as sometimes, sometimes conjunctivitis, redness of the eyes. And that kind of sets off, goes, tell, tell the physician that how oh, they should be considering Zika virus as a potential cause of this patient's symptoms. So what are they doing right now to combat this particular issue? Are they, I mean, obviously mosquito control as much as they can, although I'm sure in the regions we're talking about in Brazil, that's all but impossible to, to accomplish on a high level. But I mean, whether, you know, it's, how are we handling, I guess, more importantly here in the States, what are we doing about that? Is it more just a, be cautious when you travel there and protect yourself against mosquitoes, but what are we doing to tackle it here? That's really it. Education is really the number one way we're tackling it here in the States, making sure that people who do travel to those areas are aware of the Zika virus, what the symptoms are, and how to prevent it. And as you mentioned, the best prevention right now is preventing mosquito bites, you know, making sure they understand that the 80s Egyptian mosquito is really out pretty much throughout the whole entire day. And so you want to be wearing long clothing, putting your putting DEET on your skin and wearing clothes, if you can, that are coated with permethrin, for example, to help reduce your chance of getting bitten. Wow. So things like the DEET type sprays or, or skin treatments are effective to, in most cases, to reduce the rate at which you're getting attacked by mosquitoes. Yes. Yeah, so that and in a combination with things like mosquito nets and bed nettings, that kind of thing as well. 
Well, that's uh, it's kind of a bummer to have to think about doing that, covering up like that when you're going down to Brazil. <laughs> I'm sure it's the last thing that those people are thinking about when they're in that warm climate. Any other thoughts on what we should think about? How big of a problem is it here in the United States? I guess it sounds like it's really only affecting those who traveled to Brazil. It's not really right now a risk for us here locally in terms of it really being spread around. Correct. Currently, there has no, been no local transmission here in the continental United States, although Puerto Rico, one of the U.S. territories, has had 34 cases, and uh, most of those have been within the actual country itself. And so we're looking very closely at those areas because sooner or later, it will come to the United States. Similarly, things like chikungunya virus, dengue virus, it's just a matter of time before we start seeing more of that here as the people start traveling more and more. Well, I know I got you in the middle of your day. Are you you have any other thoughts that might be great to share before we let you get back to to the afternoon? Uh, just be, be aware as primary care physicians, be aware of patients who are traveling um, to these areas and you know, ask questions and, and not just think of Zika virus, think of other possible travel, travel-borne illnesses as well. If you want more information about the uh, physician specialist in infectious disease at Infectious Disease Specialists of Georgia, you can go to their website at infectious diseases. I'm sorry, infectiousdiseaseservices.com. Link up with them there. They put out great information on their website. Of course, Dr. Rodriguez, I really want to say thanks for taking some time to share some information. I'm sure there's some folks out there that have been really wondering what the story is with this and how much risk it provides for us here in the States as to whether or not we're going to be seeing some sort of an outbreak or not. It doesn't sound like that's the case. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. Well, we'll hopefully have you on, on the, down the road. We've got tick-borne illnesses we got to talk about. It's getting ready to get warm. And of course, I'm sure there's, as you mentioned, there's dengue and other uh, things that the mosquitoes that live around here and, and, and jump on us in the spring and summer uh, can contribute to us. So uh, coming back and get some more information down the road might be great. Be glad to. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. And if you are coming back and checking out the podcast, if you've not done so already, make sure you get over to the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio Show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives. You can subscribe to us. And that way, each week when the new episode comes out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device, ready for the ride to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be. We hope you turn around and share this link with your social media folks out there because you never know when you're going to put some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that makes a big difference for them in their life or in their business. So I want to say thank you very much in advance for turning around and sharing our content with your social media contacts. To the folks that joined me, uh, Dr. Beatty and Dr. Rodriguez, I want to say thank you very much. And I also want to throw a quick shout out to the folks at Medical Association of Georgia, our partners with the show, uh, Tom Cornegay, Donald Palmisano, and uh, Lori Cassidy-Murphy, Susan Moore, all those folks over at the Medical Association of Georgia. Great people. And I want to say thanks so much for them making us possible here on our uh, content channel. So uh, for all the folks that made us a part of their day-to-day, I want to say thank you very much. I really appreciate you sticking with us, checking us out each week. I look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 